Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined this week from Nashville, Tennessee, by Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind DanWade.com. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well indeed, Kaiser. I'll, I'll have to ask our listeners for their forgiveness if their noise is off, as I'm uh, stuck at home alone with a baby who's making a bit of a noise. Hi, but, Felix. Uh, you know, it's all good. <laughs> all right. That's, that's fine. We're going to forgive you this time. So, uh... Here in the studio, we're also joined by David Moser, Academic Director of the CET program here in Beijing. How's it going, David? Uh, great, but I'll get better. Okay, okay. <laughs> so the, uh, the China bears have bestridden, bestrode the world, are bestriding, are currently, currently bestride the world. Uh, equity markets just sort of fell off the cliff earlier this month. Uh, their crash has reverberated on global markets. Gordon Chang is wringing his hands in gleeful, schadenfreudic anticipation of the fulfillment of his long-cherished dream. Uh, nearly simultaneous with the Shanghai Composite's steep decline was a rather dramatic drop in the yuan against the dollar. The dollar is now about 6.58 oh, yuan, I think. Uh, Changes every hour. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, uh, remaining at, at 6.3 for, for, you know, a long time now, and uh, suddenly 6.6, which sucks because I'm paid in RMB. Uh, <laughs> so wait, today we're going to look at what's ailing the Chinese stock market and uh, efforts at intervention, at uh, collateral damage from those efforts. We're going to look at the relationship, if any, to the drop in the RMB's value against the dollar. Has this shaking the world's faith in the fundamental competence of China's economic decision makers. I mean, they've long been regarded, at least in some quarters, as smart, pragmatic technocrats. So with us to talk about these important issues is Tom Orlick, who's economist at Bloomberg, author of the book Understanding China's Economic Indicators from 2011. So we're very, very pleased to welcome you, Tom. Thanks very much for having me. Delighted oh, to be yeah. here. All right, excellent. Um, so I mean, let's just jump right in. Uh, maybe let's let's start with today's announcement by the National Bureau of Statistics, the NBS. I mean, you're something of an expert. You know, you've written a book on on economic statistics, and a big one dropped today. Uh, we are recording on the evening uh, in Beijing of January 19th, and that stat, of course, was the GDP number for 2015, 6.9%. That number was greeted by some skepticism in in in, in by many folks that I follow on various social media. So, what are we to make of it? Big grain of salt, little grain of salt. So I think the first thing to say is that whether or not you believe the number, growth in China is on a downward trajectory. It wasn't that long ago that we were comfortably in double digits. Now, even if the National Bureau of Statistics number is to be believed, we're well below that and probably on a continued downward trajectory for the next decade. In addition to sort of concerns about the, the slowing trajectory, there's also this idea that perhaps China's data can't be believed. That's a, an idea with a kind of um, a long history. Go back to 1997, 1998, um, when the Asian economy was sliding into crisis. Um, China was still reporting growth uh, very close to 8%, uh, which back then still had that talismanic significance. Um, and economists started asking questions. Fast forward almost 20 years, many of the same questions remain. Why is electricity output so low when GDP growth is so high? Why is the steel sector contracting um, when GDP growth is so high? How can we make sense of the uh, mismatches between those numbers? 
Well, those I do hear explanations for, right? I mean, that uh, after all, there is supposedly this rebalancing going on to to uh, consumption and the services which are less energy intensive, which are obviously less steel intensive. So that's definitely one interpretation. Um, a lot of the proxy measures which people look at to try and have an intuitive understanding of China's growth, things like electricity output, steel output, cement output, the amount of freight being carried on trains. Actually, these are all measures of the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're measures of the health of China's old industrial sector. The main thing carried on train freight is coal. Right. Coal goes into electricity. So if you look at train freight and electricity output to gauge growth, you're looking at the same thing twice. As China transitions to a new services sector, of course, the old industrial sector is doing a little bit worse. Right. Um, so that explanation has some resonance. Uh, some very credible expert people like Nick Lardy at the Peterson Institute uh, are pushing that explanation. Uh, my view is it gets you part of the way there, but it doesn't get you the entire way there. Because if that explanation was true, we'd have to be seeing an enormous boom in the services sector. We'd have to be seeing the services sector really smacking it out of the park. And that's just not what we're seeing at the moment. So um, one of the things that, that uh, I'm trying to make sense of is, is within the Chinese government, I mean, you know, there are various loci, loci, loci of, of actual economic decision making. Um, how much of what we've actually seen in recent weeks actually comes from the CSRC, you know, the China Securities Regulatory Commission or agency or commission? Yeah. Or how much from SAFE, you know, the State Administration of Foreign Exchange? How much of it from the PBOC? Uh, is it centrally coordinated? Uh, wh who's making decisions? Who's pulling the levers? Well, I think the, the short answer to that is it's opaque um, and no one really knows the answer. Um, but I think we can get some of the way towards the answer. Um, I think what's going on is that decision-making is functionally siloed. So if you're talking about the exchange rate or interest rates, then it's the central bank who uh -huh. are in operational control. If you're talking about things like the circuit breaker, which was introduced to try and control the equity market, um, that's the CSRC that's in control. When it comes to big decisions or shifts in strategy, then it's, the, um, it's a higher level of decision-making that's involved. The state council, the central leading group on economics and finance, getting involved. My sense is that different institutions have more or less leeway depending on their demonstrated competence. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the clear trends that we've seen in the last year is reform continues to gather pace in the area controlled by the central bank. Interest rates have been liberalized. There have been steps towards liberalizing the exchange rate. I think that reflects the fact that Zhou Xiaochuan is regarded as a safe pair of hands, someone who knows what he's doing. If we look at the securities sector, the equity market, we haven't seen reform gathering pace. Uh, and I think that reflects a different regime um, in the securities sector. And yet there are a lot of people who've seen these two January shocks as, as linked somehow, uh, that, that there was coordination, that it was no coincidence that uh, exchange rate liberalization was happening at the same time that this circuit breaker kicked in uh, and that there were there were other measures taken by the CSRC. Um, how much do you, coordination do you, do you think there actually was? 
Uh, and uh, Tom, could I also insert an additional question to that? Has there been any difference in the coordination between these dis different groups since Xi Jinping uh, put himself in charge of the, the leading group um, for financial and economic affairs? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think in answer to, to your question, um, Kaiser, um, I think that the central bank reforms have in some senses been the victim of the market pessimism resulting from the CSRC's mismanagement of the equity market. Um, so back in 2015, uh, the CSRC allowed margin finance to get out of control. They allowed too many people to buy too many equities with borrowed money. And what we've seen in the second half of 2015 and the beginning of 2016 is the kind of catastrophic unwinding of that mistake right. as the Shanghai Composite market has tumbled down and down and down. Now, unfortunately for China's central bank, that's coincided with their efforts to liberalize the exchange rate. By the way, liberalizing the exchange rate doesn't represent a failure. It represents a success. This the is something that Zhou Xiaochuan has wanted for quite a long time. Now, Indeed, right? it's a it's a long cherished goal of Zhou Xiaochuan and the reformers. It's critical to the rebalancing of China's economy, critical to rebalancing the economy between exports and domestic consumption, between industry and services. Unfortunately, it's happened at a time when the equity markets are kind of crystallizing the pessimism which people feel about China's medium-term growth outlook. That's why we've seen the yuan tumbling as equity markets tumble. And it was just poor management of margin finance in equities market, and just allowing that. Or were there other, all you know, two leveraged sectors that 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 were uh, that played into this, or that that, that are factors in. Uh, what's happened in January? So, I mean, I think that there are multiple structural challenges which China's financial sector faces. The big one, and the one which they've not dealt with yet, is the fact that the banks are overextended, corporates are borrowed too much, local governments are borrowed too much, credit continues to expand at a faster pace than growth, and that's not a sustainable trajectory. Um, but the specific problem which the equity market faced in 2015 and the consequences of which we're still we're still seeing was the very rapid growth in margin finance specifically to buy equities. People having a thousand yuan but using that as collateral to make a 10,000 yuan bet on the Shanghai market or the Shenzhen market. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I should circle back and, and pick up on Jeremy's point sure, about, the, uh, the about the about the uh, about the coordination that we're seeing um so um i hear a lot of criticism about opacity in china's decision making processes um and i think actually a lot of that criticism is, is legitimate uh so who are these shadowy groups who are now calling the shots on economic policy it would be great if we had a lot more clarity on that, it would be great if we could see the agendas of their meetings. It would be great if they could produce white papers on how they're thinking about the st their strategy for reform. Uh, it would be great if their members gave speeches. All of those things would be advantages. And I'm, I think, I hope that over time, the Chinese government will recognize the value of that and move in that direction. At the same time, um, I think actually relative to where we were before the creation of these coordinating groups, these these leading groups, actually the creation of the leading groups is probably a step forward. Hmm. Think about the state council. State council's got all kinds of people on it. It's got the Ministry of Public Security. It's got the health minister. It's got the education minister. 
these are not people who know or care a lot about economic decision making. So by having decisions made in that group, you're creating a big, diffuse group with multiple interests, not all of which are relevant. Too many cooks. And exactly. Too many cooks. Thank you very much. Mm. Now you've created a smaller group, less cooks. Hopefully the economic soup will become tastier. Uh-huh. <laughs> David, you had a question yeah. about um, regulation. Uh, I have just a, a very large question before we go on because uh, about re- about regulation and the the it seems to be that when I when I read the the the, the, the critics talking about what the, what they did with the market, especially I'd like to also ask about this circuit breaker thing because I, I don't quite understand that. It seems to be a mechanism that that the Chinese didn't invent and we've used it too. Uh, but, uh, but but at any rate, this notion of of um, the, the the notion seems to be that Xi Jinping wants to use markets, but that that he's he doesn't want to uh, let them freely, uh, you know, interact in the economy. He wants to micromanage them. There's this word micromanage comes up all the time, and the, and the notice the the notion that that this is a uh, you know dysfunction in the in the government. But it seems to me in terms of this just term micromanaging. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, in in 2008-9, we went through a a, a terrible tsunami. Uh, that, that was a, a, arguably a direct result of not enough regulation. The, we have a problem with our uh, with the credit card companies. We have problems with the banks. We have the problems with the insurance companies. It seems like that a lot of our problems, that, and probably one of the reasons that Bernie Sanders is doing so well, is that he's the, he's someone who's talking about you know regulation. You're not talking about Elizabeth Warren as running mate. Right? Yeah, yeah. So. I, isn't this? I mean, can you address that in terms of this? Is a very different model that we're that we're dealing with here, and this this accusations that Xi Jinping is micromanaging. Isn't there something hip, hypocritical or at least uh, a little bit inconsistent about this attack? Yeah, um, I think we should be better at recognizing the moat in our own eye, right? Yeah. Um, so, um, I think uh, a lot of criticism of China comes from a kind of market purist place, right? The idea that markets are marvelous and efficient, and if only we could let markets make all the decisions, then China's economy would rebalance and become more equitable and grow on a sustainable path. Um, And as you say, the experience that we have in the West suggests that actually that's not the case. And free markets often create perverse or undesirable outcomes a um, lot of pain that that obviously the government would like to avoid here as well right indeed um so i think a, a good example of this is interest rate liberalization right so the pboc one of the big successes from china's central bank has been interest rate liberalization um allowing banks to pay market rates to savers and charge market rates to borrowers. Mm-hmm. This is seen as really critical to having a more efficient allocation of credit, which itself, which is critical to having a more efficient economy. Um, so the PBOC made significant progress on interest rate liberalization, but they continued to give guidance to the banks. They'd call the banks and say, "Look, we think you're offering, um, we think you're offering an unsustainably high interest rate to your savers. Why don't you bring it down a few notches?" And so the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times, um, maybe not specifically them, but the the press wades in and says, China, they think they're doing market reforms, but they don't understand. They've got to constantly meddle. They've got to constantly call the banks and tell them what to do. Well, let's think about what happened when the US liberalized interest rates, savings and loan crisis. What happened when Japan 
liberalized interest rates, real estate bubble, following followed by crisis, followed by 20 years of very low growth. So does the market on its own deliver an efficient, painless solution? The experience that we have in other major economies very strongly suggests that it doesn't. Um, so I think you can micromanage well or you can micromanage badly um, and no one's going to get it perfectly right. But I think the the idea that we should criticize China's decision makers um, for um, for still being present in markets and trying to shape outcomes in ways they think are socially desirable, uh, I don't think those criticisms hold a lot of water. So so with the, the circuit breaker thing that, that, that his name is Xiao Gang <clears throat> got uh, uh, you know uh, up uh, set, set, to, set in motion right, right? Well, we're not we're not going to make any kind of speculations about about whether he may have you know uh, tendered a resignation right or we'll, uh, those will, will not be tolerated right but that that's an obvious attempt at it micromanaging uh, you know uh, that something to, uh, to avoid exactly this 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 sort of uh, hemorrhaging that happened last year uh, seems well-meaning at least, and then I see see this blasted in all kind of editorials that what a stupid thing it was, and and of course he accused the market of being immature, uh, but but anyone who sees this coming, of course, is going to start dumping as soon as they they see that it's reaching this what was it seven percent uh, drop, then this thing automatically kicked in, right? But 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 why the criticism? Don't haven't we used that you know circuit breaker mechanism before? It's not a new thing. In, in other words, uh, is it, was it just the execution of how it was implemented? Yeah, well, I think there was, there was a specific issue with the design of this particular circuit breaker. Uh, so the idea was if the market falls 5%, we'll give the market a 15-minute cooling off period where no one's allowed to trade, and then we'll let people come and trade again. And then if it falls to 7%, then we'll cease trading for the day. Was this a Chinese innovation, or was that particular implementation copied from uh, from, from, from New York or uh, I believe, well, certainly that particular system is not in place anywhere else in the world at okay. the moment. The cooling um, off period. Yeah. So, so what in fact happened was during the cooling off period, <clears throat> people actually took advantage of the cooling off period to become more stressed. Um, <laughs> and so after 15 minutes, they had more sell orders in place. And the experience in the first week of January was if you fell 5%, you took 15 minutes off and then you immediately dropped the remaining 2%. To, to, to take you down to 7% for the day. That was the end of trading. Um, there were lots of jokes about how Chinese traders had great work-life balance. Right. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think this is this is an example of, I guess, how th this particular innovation, this particular type of market intervention was poorly conceived, right? It had the opposite effect right. of the one that it was intended to have. Doesn't mean that all market interventions are ill-conceived, but this particular one seems to have fairly clearly been an error of judgment. So it sounds like you're, you're not a party to, the, to this sort of religion of, of the, that the market is self-correcting, miraculous, organic thing that doesn't need to be, and that, and that the, the commies may have a right idea. No neoliberal, <laughs> he... Uh, what, what does this actually, I mean, what, we, what we've dealt with in, in January uh, have to do with what happened in July? How are these two things linked? I mean, you know, seven months ago or six months ago, uh, we had another uh, dramatic episode. Was there no learning from that? Uh, are are the, these two things linked? So I think it's stage one and stage two. Mm -hmm. um, so the market rose from, I'm going to get the exact numbers wrong, but from somewhere below 3,000 
up to um, somewhere above well, 5,000 5, right. um, in the first half of 2015. It corrected down around a third of that, around two thirds of that dif- distance mm-hmm. in, um, June, July, right? in July. Yeah. Um, what looks, what seems to have happened in January is that we got a bit further down. Um, so, the and and, and what, what do you do? You think the CSRC has learned lessons from this? Uh, is there evidence that, that you can see that 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 they've been chastened in some way? Well. Um, I think it's too early to tell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we're still we're still in the crisis. We're still kind of in the crisis phase for China's equity market. No one looks good in a crisis. Right. If you looked at Bernanke, Paulson, Geithner in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, running around between Bear Stearns and AIG uh, and other collapsing bits of China, of the U.S. financial system, they didn't look like. Um, geniuses who so. were ahead of the market. <laughs> they looked like uh, people who were desperately trying to put out fires. Um, I don't think, similarly, I don't think it's, it's particularly fair to judge the competence of China's policymakers in the midst of a crisis. Mm. Whether or not they've learned lessons, I, I hope so, and we'll find out in the next few months, I think. Okay, then maybe I can ask... But, uh, you think, can I ask, do you think that, um, you know, a lot of the media reports about this have opened with uh, some variation on the idea that uh, until recently we thought that China's, you know, government was competent economically and now uh, it has been revealed to not really know what it's doing. Do you think this sentiment is really widespread and, you know, what effect will that have... Um, not so much on the Chinese uh, stock markets, but on um, uh, ideas abroad and at home of the Chinese economy generally. Yeah, I think I think for Chinese leaders, two unfortunate things have happened at the same time. So the first unfortunate thing which happened is they've passed peak growth. Um, it's not really their fault. Um, working age population is shrinking. Um, they're already the world's number one exporter, so their their scope to grow more by shipping more flat screen televisions and sneakers has been reduced. Uh, they've already built a bunch of roads and airports, so that option is kind of closed down as well. So growth's on a downward path. You always look a bit less smart when your economy is slowing. Second thing which is which has happened, and, and this is kind of a necessary reform, um, but doesn't make them look particularly in control, is... Well, they're stepping back, right? The um, the uh, the third plenum document on deepening reform, uh, the 13th five-year plan, uh, sort of central to these plans is the idea that the state is going to um, be more see efficient more, but do right. less and the market's going to do more. And when you cede control to the market, um, you cede control to the market. Um, and so, you know, the... the, uh, the the curtain is pulled back, and um, we see the um, we see the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Maybe somewhat related to this, I've seen the word <clears throat> I've seen the word supply side economics being used now. I think, if not not mistaken, it was first introduced in a rap song, is when they first quoted it. Uh, but now I've seen it in just to, just tonight in 
Xinhua release, they're talking about strengthening the supply side. Mm-hmm. I don't What's, think they mean the Laffer curve. I don't think they're talking well, about Well, that's what I'm saying. Though. What This must be supply side with Chinese characteristics. So what are they talking about? No, I think it is actually fairly similar to what we saw with Reagan, Reagan. in the 80s and Thatcher. It's trickle down. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not, well, trickle down was kind of, I think, an idea which was kind of tacked on to supply side economics to, to kind of pretend that it was good for everybody. Um, I think, I mean, fundamentally, the idea of supply side economics is that we should make the supply side of the economy more efficient, right? Um, Typically by allowing the market um, greater control. Um, I I don't think it's a bad idea. Clearly, if we look at the experience in the US and the UK, it it has some negative consequences, widening inequality and so on. Um, But I think the real issue, if you step back a little bit, I think that what it actually, what this actually speaks to is the exhaustion of other methods to drive growth, mm. right? Mm. So what's been driving out of levers to pull exactly. Mm. So so what's been driving growth in China for the last ten twenty years? Bunch of people moving from the countryside to the city, stopping growing cabbages, starting grow- making iPads. That's a huge driver of growth. Um, Massive export boom, sure. drawing on news, drawing on the entire world as a source of demand. So the issue for China is that these drivers of growth, they're just not nearly as powerful as they used to be. Mm-hmm. So they have to look for new drivers of growth, and they've they've turned to the supply side. But the experience in the U.S. and the U.K. is well, you do these supply side reforms. Did the U.K. and the U.S. economies like leap forward? with supply side reforms in the 1980s no they had like a marginal the marginally faster growth rate so i think that's what we're going to be looking at for china as well except that the rich got rich really fast <laughs> that's what we're seeing now in fact. Well, no, Be- mm. beijing has made very plain its intention to rebalance the economy away from export-led growth away from fixed asset investments away from you know uh, just sort of infrastructure and things like that and toward uh services and toward you know domestic consumption uh, to what extent is that really happening i mean how then and, and what indicators ought we be looking at to, to figure out uh whether this rebalancing is is taking hold i mean what's been the progress on that front so um so for me um what the way i think about it is you need to break down china's structural challenges into sort of two big buckets mm-hmm. there's one big bucket which is around rebalancing shifting from manufacturing to services from investment to consumption, from foreign demand to domestic demand. On that set of issues, they're actually doing pretty well. There's a kind of self-sustaining positive dynamic. Incomes rise, that drives more demand for services. Services are more labor intensive, uh, so incomes rise more, and people demand more services. We're seeing that dynamic kind of at work. If you look at today's GDP data, the services is the bit of the economy that's doing best incomes are outpacing the rest of the economy. It's working. The second big challenge that they face, and this is where they're really not doing very well, is deleveraging. Mm -hmm. So for the last, since 2009, we've just had explosive credit growth. Credit growth has been growing much faster than the rest of the economy. Um, So we've been borrowing more and more and more, but we've been producing not enough to repay those loans. Right. That's not a sustainable trajectory. Um, that's the big challenge which China's leaders still need to address. Is that a matter of of, of the credit going to inefficient state-owned enterprises primarily? Uh, is it 
where, where is the, uh, the, the the bad lending happening? Yeah, so there's a kind of, I mean, that is the problem. Um, and there is a kind of Pollyanna-esque mm-hmm. positive outcome for all of this, which is also related to the rapid growth in the services sector. So think about like a steel mill, right? How much credit and capital do you need to get a bit of output out of a steel mill? A lot, right? right? Very capital intensive, very credit intensive. Okay, now think about a sort of uh, a um, web gaming firm. Right, an app. How much capital and credit does does that need? Precious little. Not very much. So people think China needs more and more credit to produce less and less growth, and that can't end well. But the it's pot- shifting to these le- these more, less credit hungry, less uh, more capital efficient. Exactly. Right, uh, so the, the kind of the Pollyanna solution, the Goldilocks solution, um, just to throw more children's characters at the <laughs> at the narrative. What about the Red Riding is, Hood? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, they, they don't. So the you get credit going from the steel mills to the uh, web game designers. That could mean you can slow credit growth without hammering the real economy. Mm. That's the hope. Well, that opens a question I had about the long term. Can I raise that? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, it, it seems to me that, that whatever the, the, the problems might be now, and, and certainly you look at market volatility, that, that goes away. That comes and goes very, very quickly, right? We, we've seen it a, a lot in the United States as well. But it seems like uh, Xi Jinping or whoever is in charge of this thing is thinking very long term. And it seems, it seems to me anyway that for the long term, China seems to be doing very well. In terms of projects like the one uh, one belt one road and now the AIB. AIB and as you just said the, these trajectories with the with the internet with IT with Alibaba with this sort of sector is booming you have uh, 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 the service sector as you said now increasingly maybe even 50% of GDP and all this and also uh, uh, the, the the bullets that they have to dodge such as the the shortage of the, the shrinking labor force demographic crunch and so forth these are bullets that are slow moving and you know dodgeable um so i mean the, the, it, it seems is it not or, true or that for structural the structural or and unavoidable but i'm not sure but 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 nevertheless foreseeable and uh, manageable maybe, maybe. At, at some point at least so i mean it, so for is the it long a glacier or a bullet that's the question <laughs> a glacier a slow but you can't a glacier or a bullet yeah, yeah either one will fuck a brother up though either um, one will will yeah. kill you yeah uh what about that aspect that all the doomsayers are not looking at china's you know trajectory which is long term looks good so i i think i mean i fundamentally i think i'm i'm on the same page as you um i think one thing which people forget is China's still really quite low up the development totem pole. When did Japan fall over? Japan fell over in 1989. um, And uh, GDP per capita, how rich Japan, Japanese people were, they basically already caught up with the US. So the scope for growing by catching up... $40,000 at that point, right? I I don't know the exact number, but in my head, I think they were at like 80 to 90% of US levels of personal income um and china's at like one eighth right china's (laughs) at like 20 percent um so will they get to 80 percent i don't know but even if they get to 50 percent that's a bunch of development space um but i think there is a there is reason that you sort of you mentioned aiib you mentioned one belt one road um these kind of strategic initiatives actually there's quite an important way in which the trouble we're seeing at the moment 
actually damages those big initiatives, right? So um, why does everyone want to be friends with China? Why do all of these countries want Chinese investment? Well, it's because they think that China is going to be the biggest economy in the world. Um, if you go back a few years, everyone thought China was going to overtake the US in 2020, around 2020. How much do you think the Chinese economy grew in dollar terms in 2015? 1%. Uh, the yuan fell because of the yuan devaluation yuan fell six percent against the dollar economy grew around six percent basically they had zero growth in dollar terms u.s economy grew last year right so in fact as barack obama said in his state of the union address u.s is the most powerful economy in the world period and that gap between the u.s and china has got wider in 2015 mm. if the yuan falls 10 percent this year which i don't think it will but some economists think it will then the u.s then the chinese economy is going to shrink in dollar mm. terms that's the first thing second thing how does china pay for these strategic initiatives how do they pay for one belt one road aiib well they grab money from their foreign exchange reserves and they use it to fund them mm-hmm. can they carry on doing that maybe not They've actually been dipping into the the reserve considerably in in recent years, right? Yeah. So so in the past years, they were like, we've got all this money. Let's use it to build a bunch of roads in Africa. Let's build it, use it to build some railroads into Central Europe. Let's use it strategically to expand our kind of geopolitical reach, right? Good idea. Much more sensible than just putting it in U.S. treasuries where you get no return. But what's happened in the last six months? Well, massive yuan depreciation expectations... Which causes capital flight, right? Capital outflows. PBOC's been hemorrhaging foreign exchange reserves. Six months ago, a year ago, they had $4 trillion. Now they've got $3.3 trillion. Mm -hmm. They carry on like that for a bit longer. They're not going to have that big pot of money Mm. that they can use for those big, far-sighted strategic initiatives. And and wow. uh, foreign cur- I mean, in the hard currency reserves are, us- are mainly a function of, of export earnings, right? So let's let's talk a little bit about exports because this still is a very very important, even if it is a, a, a shrinking proportion proportionately smaller piece of, of of China's GDP. It's still incredibly significant. And you recently authored co-authored uh, a study looking at the composition of export. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what I mean, what what accounted for the decline in Chinese exports in 2015? And uh, what maybe uh, we've seen an uptick in the first month of this year, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, exports in 2015 shrank for the first time since 2009. Right. So the headline number is pretty depressing. Um, But there's actually some good news buried in there as well. Um, World imports shrank even more than China's exports did. So what does that tell you? It tells you there isn't a kind of fundamental problem with China's competitiveness. Problem isn't China's too expensive, maybe because wages have gone up or the yuan's too too highly valued. The problem is global demand sucks. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so the hope there is that when we get back to a stronger global economy, and the IMF thinks we'll have a slightly, slightly stronger global economy this year, then China's exports are going to come back a bit. The other positive buried in there is, well... Headline exports are important, but what's really important for China is the percentage of exports that they're making themselves, right? So the old story was China can't make stuff. China can just bolt Low stuff together. Add, right? Exactly. We'll import parts from Korea and Japan, clip them together and sell them. 
and there were all of those stories about how the iPad, like 99% of the value of the iPad went to Apple and Taiwan mm-hmm. and only 1% went to China. Right, the smile curve right there. I hadn't heard that term, but it makes sense. Right, right. Um, y- that, y- that's you know, changing. The, 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 where, you know, the, the high value add is on either side, okay. on design and then on the other side, and marketing and then and on, on up the middle part is the okay. low value add. Okay, the so they're in the, they're in the kind of uh, trench, in the, the the trench of the small. So that's changing a bit. Maybe we're kind of like, we've gone from a smile to a kind of more of a grimace or something. <laughs> um, so if you look at, so if you go back in time a decade, around 50% of the value of exports is captured by China. Oh. So 50% of it oh. is coming from the components or the design. Now it's 70%. Um, so China. I'm surprised that it was that high even a decade ago. Fifty percent was seems struck. Well, fifty yeah. percent ago, 50, a decade ago was two thousand and two thousand and six. So I'm, I'm and also looking at those particular industries. If you just look at iPad, you you maybe skew your vision of the whole of the of the of the whole picture. Jeremy, are you still following the plot here? Are we uh, we lost you? <laughs> uh, no, no, I am indeed. Just okay. trying to keep my baby quiet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's another thing with the exports. It seems like, well, two things. It's still, there's so many countries for which China is the largest exporter or importer. And uh, for some place like the United States, you know, relatively fewer, much, much fewer. But also it strikes me that China exports everything. All, uh, the diversity of the, the, the things they export is quite amazing. That, that It seems immune to any sorts of global, you know, certain sectors, uh, slumps. Uh, for the for David, the, for you're the such a Pollyanna. You actually believe <laughs> rhetoric about AI and the One Belt One Road, and now you're saying China is immune to economic Im- realities. No, not immune to it, but I, it's just uh, it's, there. There is such a there. Maybe they're not Superman, but but uh, you know maybe they're immune from kryptonite at least. I don't know. I guess you know there's there's a school of of of, of thought out there. I mean, I, among certain economists when they talk about China that tends to to downplay uh, you know anything that's very particularistic about the, the political economy of China that says that basically uh, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Chile or Chad or China there's one universal set of, of, of economic algorithms that you just sort of roll things through and I've always sort of pushed back from a position of ignorance but believing that that the the uh, very thorough involvement of the party state in economic decision making, a vestige perhaps of you know the, the more planned economy days, uh, gives it more levers to pull, gives it more more choices. Where do you where do you come down on that? Yeah, I mean, I think one really striking point about if you look at if you look at the global economy, right? There are a lot of countries which were poor, and development economics tells us that poor countries should get rich because it's cheaper to produce things in them so capital should go to them they should start off you know doing some low value added clothes and shoes get some experience slowly move up the value chain is that do many countries actually follow that trajectory no Hmm. almost all countries don't follow that trajectory Almost all countries in Africa were poor 20, 30 years ago. Many of them, maybe most of them, still quite poor today. Many countries in Asia were poor 20 or 30 years ago. Maybe they've had a little bit of development success, but 
Many of them are still relatively undeveloped today. China is one of a very small group of countries that is successfully following the development trajectory which the textbooks <laughs> say you should be able to follow. And to me, that speaks to a degree of competence in China's technocrats, China's policymakers that is not unique. We've seen it in Taiwan and Japan and Korea, but it's certainly not universal. Right, so it's, 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 it's exceptionalism <laughs> inheres in its I, adherence to the universal template. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> uh, uh, one, one more topic that I wanted to touch, uh, which is capital flight. Uh, and uh, this, this has been very much in the news recently. We've seen some new numbers about... Uh, you know the amount of money that that uh, is 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 safe able to patch holes. Is this something that we're simply going to live with? And what does what does the the level of capital flight actually tell us right now about the health of the economy? So, I think a, a few years ago it was kind of difficult to see anything that could really knock China's economy over. Um, and my base case now. And the base case of, of most investors I speak to is still that the Chinese economy isn't going to be knocked over. Um, but I think for the first time in the last few months, people have seen a way in which China's government could lose control of a key variable. They could lose control of the exchange rate. Mm. And that's basically through the channel of capital flight. We've seen very large amounts of money heading out of China in the last six months or so. Can you put a number to that, a rough number to it? So um, we're talking, so if you talk, look at China's foreign exchange reserves, right? They peaked at more than four, a, trillion. A four trillion. Now they're just above 3.3 trillion. Mm -hmm. So that's $700 billion, which is exited from China um, over a relatively short period of time. Um, now, China still has $3.3 trillion in foreign exchange reserves. That's more than any other country in the world. It's a very significant buffer. Um, however, China's central bank now faces a relatively difficult choice. Do they continue spending foreign exchange reserves to defend a currency which appears to be too strong for the export sector. Mm -hmm. Exports shrank in 2015. Um, or do they stop wasting the national treasure and allow the market to find its own level on the yuan? What we've seen in the last few months is the central bank kind of going back and forth on the best solution mm -hmm. to that problem. First of all, thinking, okay, we're going to let the market find its own level. Market hammers the yuan for a few days central bank wades back into the market. Then again, the central bank allows the market to find its level in the beginning of January. Yuan gets hammered. Central bank moves back into the market. So every time they've loosened the band, it's gone to the extreme of the, of, of the, of, of the, the, the bandwidth allocated, right? I mean, it's... Which is actually, I mean, I think a surprise to a lot of Americans who are used to thinking of the Yuan as, as terribly undervalued, right? Yeah. How are we getting that so wrong? I mean, so, when, when market signals and all told us the opposite. I mean, I've been telling people for years, you know, actually, they loosen the band and the, the, the UN will devalue. So, um, so there's a bunch of different, I mean, 
frankly, it's very hard to understand exchange rates. Um, and understanding China's exchange rate is made doubly difficult by the fact that the government is kind of moving in and out of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the reason why, until recently, the American view was that the yuan was undervalued was because China still had a big trade surplus, right? right. So when you've got a trade surplus, what that basically is telling you're you're exporting more than you're importing, and the kind of the economic textbooks tell you the way you correct that imbalance is by having a stronger currency. That's still the case. What's happened is that we've had capital outflows which are even larger than the trade surplus. Mm. So that's why we've swung from appreciation pressure to depreciation pressure. That's interesting. Very interesting. Well, this is a, a lot to chew on. Uh, sorry, guys, if I if I ended up asking all the questions, Jeremy. Do you have anything more for Tom before we uh, move to recommendations? Um, I mean, can I be a, a horrible person and ask you for some predictions, Tom? This year, this decade, <laughs> anything that you'd care to comment on the the future of Chinese economy? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me about the U.S. presidential race. Um, <laughs> that too. No, no, that would be a truly horrible thing to ask you. <laughs> so, I mean, so there's a lot of pessimism out there at the moment. Um, I, I think the pessimism, I think the pessimism is actually overdone. Um, I think the immediate trajectory of China's economy is going to be stability. China's government pushed a huge amount of stimulus into the economy in the last year. They cut interest rates a bunch of times. They ratcheted up public spending. They bailed out highly indebted local governments. We're still seeing all of that stimulus passing through into the economy. So I think as we push further into 2016, um, we're going to see um, that stimulus get through the multiplier. And, uh, exactly, uh, it's going to be buoying growth. Glad to see you've been reading your uh, John Maynard Keynes Kaiser. Right, of course. Um, we're all Keynesians now. Yes. <laughs> Um, I, can I be a Sinecopodian? Yeah, you can. <laughs> okay, Absolutely. good. Um, so I think that's the first thing to say. Uh, I think the second thing to say is actually over the period where I've been covering China, the prediction game has just got a lot more difficult. Um, in the past, the prediction game was focused on quite a narrow set of variables and quite a predictable set of government policy preferences, right? If you're looking at the Yuan, pretty much any time from 2005 till 2013, all you had to guess was the pace of appreciation that the central bank was going to go for. Now, you have to guess, okay, lots of moving parts. Will the central bank allow the market control or not? If it allows the market control, does the market want it to go up or does it want it to go down? So predictions become a lot more complicated. Mm. Is is that Pollyannish, Jeremy? <laughs> or Ick Pollyannish? No, I don't think so, David. It's 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 missing that kind of lovely sunniness of yours that you know makes everything seem better. But, you know, thanks, I, mean, I, I I think from now on, when we do talk to Tom, it'll always be when the Chinese market or the stock market uh, is 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 down because I love the way he puts that vowel on that word D O W N. Can you say down again for us? A, I was just thinking, actually, I'm going to ignore that request. But actually, <laughs> as we've got as we've got a as we've got Pollyanna in the room, we should have like Polyphemus as well. 
the um, the the Cyclops from Odysseus. Right. Uh, uh, both start with Polly. Very different worldviews. They could balance also, each other's out. We can um, talk about you know the the Scylla of 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 of, of the Ratchet or of, of the uh, the Scylla of the market and the Charybdis of the state control. Uh, state control. There we go. Right. Let's get it. All right. All right. The um, Jeremy. Yeah, Jeremy. Why don't you start us off with recommendations? All right, uh, a uh, piece published on China File uh, by our old friend James Palmer, together with a photo gallery uh, about the Russian-Chinese borderlands. Uh, great read and lovely photographs. That was great. I wanted to ask James about one little weird detail in there about like the medieval armaments of the actual like <laughs> melee, the combat. I mean, were they like let's let's play at SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronisms? I mean, it was, it was talking about like you know fighting with bill hooks and with spears and uh and 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 just opting for sort of a, a non-gunpowder kind of I mean, fights on like the the the, the Mansky island or whatever you know in Jimbaldal or whatever yeah. which was just really bizarre i mean was he making that shit up <laughs> cool. did you did, did you get not like hang up on that i mean i hung up on that and it was like weirded out but anyway oh, yeah great piece um Really interesting. I, I, would, I, would, I was just, I kept finding myself in during the course of the reading, like, where did you get this? How did, I mean, where did this detail emerge from? How have I not encountered this, this detail before? And the photos, wow, the photos are great. Yeah, I, 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 I double, I double recommend that one. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, is that it? For you just want a recommendation this week? That's it for me. Okay, David. Uh, following on the subject matter here, but but also there's been a lot about this on Twitter these few days, and and a Twitter post about Oxfam just reported that that now 62 billionaires own as much wealth as the lower 3.6 billion people, gone down from 300 something last year it was 80 something now it's down to 62 people own more than half the entire world's wealth, uh, and and on top of that. Uh, Mike Forsyth told me a few weeks ago that uh, the richest person in the American Congress, Daryl Issa, who uh, ha- is, owns something like $800 million, if he were a member of the Chinese Politburo or the Chinese the People's Political Consultative Congress, he would only be the 166th richest member of uh, that body of the CPPCC of the CPPCC or or maybe of all of them together okay cuz ice is the richest in of of the yeah, house congress, congress and the supreme court you know everything so, which tells you that this this income inequality we're talking about is 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 enormous and and maybe a worse problem in china sure, than sure. it is uh, so well, I mean, to, when you talk about the PBOC, that's kind of weird. Though. I mean, I, I'm not, not I mean, the, the CPPCC because you know, they're money. Got, you know, that's got lots of billionaires. Yes, in it. I mean, uh, that's, that's the point. Of, that's the whole point. But, but, yeah, you know, yeah. That, that's, that's and it's a little bit different from the the American system. Anyway, so my recommendations are twofold. One is uh, a book called Billionaires: Reflections on the Upper Crust by Daryl M. West. He's at the Brookings Institute, and it's it hits a study of billionaires and their their uh, activities in political advocacy. And how billionaire activism is affects, affecting the democratic process, and we don't need to tell our American listeners about that. With uh, the people such as Sheldon Adelson and well, the now we have a billionaire running, a, and and yeah, and the other one is so that's one, and the other is a, a new article in the just in the New New Yorker, January twenty fifth, by Jane Mayer, called report from the Reporter at Large uh, column, just called New Coke. Coke being the Coke, K-O-C-H, K-O-C-H right. Coke Brothers, 
that's a sort of a report on how Charles and David Koch are sort of rebranding themselves uh, so as to have a greater impact on American electoral politics and public policy. So I'm focusing on billionaires and their effects on the world. <laughs> so when you when you started off on that, I thought you were going to re- recommend uh, Eat the Rich by Megadeth. Um, <laughs> it's a good album. That's a good album. No, no, it's, I don't know. it's a good song, right? Yeah. You know, um, I, I was actually in Seoul uh, recently. Um, and I uh, had a really interesting presentation on some of the economic implications of, of the, the issue with inequality you just described. Um, the, the, the speaker, um, he, was a, he was a former advisor to, um, to the Korean president, um, and he made the point that if all of the wealth and all of the assets is concentrated in a small group, um, well, that creates a big problem with demand, right? Because if you're really rich you have a very low propensity to consume, right? If you have right. an income of right. millions of dollars a year, even if you're blowing it, even if you're going out and buying Louis Vuitton handbags every day, yeah. you're still saving 80% of your income. You offshore it. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, if you have very large wealth inequality, you also have a very high savings rate, which means people aren't going out and spending enough money. Right. I think that's one of the reasons why China is having problems boosting its consumption because, because of, of that wealth inequality, inequality issue yeah because they have as many billionaires as the united states in a country with because what matters is, is the propensity to consume and not the right. absolute amount of dollar amounts yeah so, right. mm. so uh, did, dave did you ever finish pkt what did you ever finish thomas pkt i know i never got through no it is too long to, yeah, for I, a human I, being I, to I finish less than a third of the way yeah through. I, that's about me too uh, yeah but but I, I i read what paul krugman said about him and that's probably good enough okay <laughs> okay tom what's your recommendation for the week uh so i've got i'm gonna have two recommendations Great. um so i have a i have a i have a young daughter so i have extensive um experience with children's books um, uh, so I have a recommendation for anyone who's looking for a, a book for their small child. Um, so Morris Sendak oh. uh, was the author well, of um, uh, Where the Wild, Wild Things Are. Uh, it's his most famous book. It's a, it's a brilliant book. Um, having read it multiple times uh, and sort of feeling almost physically sick at the thought of having to read it again, I went and on Amazon and found all of his other books. Those are like uh, eight words in the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's Let written- the wild rumpus begin and that's about it. Um, so he's, he's written a bunch of other books and the best one I think is called Outside Over There. Um, and it's a, it's a kind of fantasy, um, uh, centered around a, a young girl who has to rescue her baby brother, um, from goblins ah. who steal him to be a participant in a goblin wedding and replace him <laughs> with an ice baby. Um, oh, I know this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, um, a beautiful book, beautifully illustrated, um, um, Great message, I think, for, for 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 young girls. I don't think there are enough children's books which have which have young girls as their main character. Um, so that's my first recommendation. Outside over there by by Morris Sandak. Mm. Um, my second recommendation. Um, for a long time after moving to giant China, I only read books about China, um, and I studied Chinese. Um, and then a year ago, I realised I hadn't read a novel um, for about eight years. Oh, you so, thing. so I started reading novels again. Um, and um, one of the ones I read was uh, The Adventures of Algie March uh, by Sol Bellow, um, which is a kind of has a kind of fantastic rogues gallery uh, of characters uh, set in um, the American Depression uh, in one of America's great cities um, and has a sort of 
I've never read a book by Saul Bellow before, but he has an amazing kind of vividness of writing, uh, an amazing and an amazing kind of humaneness and understanding of a huge host of different characters. Um, so it's long. Um, took me a while to get through it, but uh, but I give it a high recommendation. All right, I'm always looking for good new novels to read, and uh, I've heard marvelous things about Saul Bellow, and I've never read anything by him either. But he's sort of in that uh, he's he's of a sort with a lot of the great American authors that I really like. So yeah. Great, great. The Adventures of Algie Marsh. That's March? right, yeah. Marsh? March. Algie Marsh. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but yeah. All right, great, wonderful. Uh, I'm going to go and wade into your territory here and talk about a, a book that I'm reading right now. I'm only, again, maybe maybe only a quarter of the way through it, but it's already just kind of fascinating. It's by a Nobel Prize-winning economist um, named Edmund Phelps. I think he won a Nobel in 2006. The book is called Mass, Mass Flourishing. Uh, which is a concept that he introduces, um, uh, you know, that that, that that talks about these innovation takeoffs where you not only see uh, real wages, but you also see productivity increase manifold in uh, uh, across relatively short periods of time. Uh, and, you know, he identifies these as uh, these, these, you know, the countries of the West, basically the United States, Great Britain, France and Germany. Uh, and in, in the case of most of them in the early 19th century after basically the Congress of Vienna after the defeat of Napoleon. He sees these decades of, of just uh, genuine innovation. And interestingly, you know, I, I sort of assumed that he thought that, uh, you know, America in the era of the great Silicon Valley giants would, was another instance of this. But no, in fact, he believes that America uh, since the 1970s has stopped being this, that America in the 1960s exhibited this. Uh, and it's it's fascinating. Uh, why? I mean, there's a little bit of a you know kind of uh, a libertarian streak in it that I'm uncomfortable with. Um, but he hasn't he hasn't been explicit about this. But you know he he really thinks that the the villain is any time that we start sort of corporatist thinking, uh, placement placing, you know, uh, national or 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 uh, community interests above those of the individual. Sort of this unfettered. Um, celebration of, in, of of the individual mm. is is the way to to do this. He he flicked at China a few times that I've gotten so far, and and interestingly he's 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 pointed to China's economic growth. Uh, thinks of it as a very vibrant time, but not a, a, one of genuine dynamism. Uh, where do you see that 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 kind of innovation? He thinks it's mostly a. Uh, the fact that it's been able to borrow good ideas from other countries mm. in, in 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 recent times, but and he he says, and I think quite correctly, that China is well aware of its lack of uh, that kind of innovative capacity yeah. and is looking around it in the world for right. the the way forward. And he apparently doesn't believe that it's you know top down uh, pushing for you know two point five percent GDP spend on R and D and that's the magic number or anything like that. It's 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 quite different. Uh, very original thinking. I'm enjoying it so far. He's he's actually a very talented writer. He draws on, you know, I mean, a ton of of history. He draws on literature. He draws on. I mean, there there are marvelous kind of wide ranging allusions to different things. Uh, he's 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 obviously quite a, a Renaissance man, a real polymath. Uh, I, I recommend it. It was a gift from a visiting MBA class from I think the State University of New York at Buffalo. Thanks, guys, if you're listening to this. That was uh, it's I'm really enjoying it. Anyway, hey, great. Uh, Thanks a ton, Tom. It was uh, really very kind of you to, to share your, your, your thoughts with our, our listenership. And uh, I'm sure we'll get lots of write us uh, on our Facebook page uh, or on the podcast page. And, and uh, I'll try and put your questions to Tom. Thanks very much. Thanks and uh, Jeremy, have a good one.
Yeah, thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, David. Thank and you. We will see you guys next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care.